Let's turn now to uh, Third John for our scripture reading. to read these 14 verses. Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth in For his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does of prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. May we love and treasure his commandments more than the finest gold. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word for its richness, its fullness, for its truth. We pray that you might apply it to us this morning. We pray that this word that we have heard might be mixed with faith and that you would edify and instruct us this morning. Through Jesus Christ, amen. The church is likened to many things in the scriptures. It's compared to many different things, like it's, it, the church is called the bride of Christ. The church as a, the church as a body is the bride of Christ. We're, we're not Christ's bride as individuals. There are people that teach that, and that's certainly a, um, you know, a heresy. But the, but the church is the body, the, all of us together is in the scriptures called the bride of Christ. The church is compared to an army, the Lord's army. The church is 
called a body. A body that has many different parts. Some that are more prominent than others, but, but every part is necessary. And every part is, is important. But in the church is also compared to a building. A building that's fitly joined together and nourished by what every joint and ligament supplies. Now, and I'd like to think a minute about this metaphor for the, the church as the, as the temple. Buildings can be destroyed in a very short time by very powerful forces like earthquakes, large tremors in the ground that can shake a building apart in a matter of seconds or in a moment, in minutes, and cause the building to collapse. Massive power that, that unleashed very quickly, shaking the very earth that things stand on and causing many things to collapse. You remember the the bridges that collapsed in the San Francisco Bay Area at an earthquake there in in um, the late late eighties. Entire bridges, the upper decks, just collapsed down on the lower decks, trapping uh, many cars and people. It happened in a moment. Nobody nobody expected it. Nobody saw it coming. And a moment later, everything was a mess of jumbled steel and iron. Earthquake, uh, uh, bombs, or tornadoes and hurricanes. Tornadoes can come through. Incredibly strong forces in, in very short time and, and entirely blow away an entire building so that there's nothing there but a hole in the ground or perhaps a, a slab for the foundation. The whole building is gone never to be found, the pieces strewn about. But see, buildings can also be destroyed slowly by tiny forces whose cumulative effect over time results in the exact same destruction of, of the building. It can be destroyed by, by rust, um, by by uh, if it's wood, by termites. But but buildings could also thing, things. Structures can also be destroyed by just small vibrations. It doesn't take a big earthquake. Small vibrations, over time, can bring failure to buildings, particularly metal. It's called fatigue failure. Just small vibrations, over a long period of time, eventually fatigue the metal. And it breaks. Maybe you've done that with a piece of metal that you that you bend. Maybe you know use big bending moments. You do it. You do it for thirty seconds, and you can break a piece of metal. Fatigue. S- small. Small vibrations. That over time, are just as destructive as as these large. Um, these large forces. And the sins of which that John. In, accuses diatrophies of are, are analogous to these types of small vibrations that over time wreak havoc in the body of Christ, destroying the church. 
and, and bringing great harm uh, to many people. There doesn't have to be, and, and maybe isn't, some gross moral scandal or some blatant apostasy, which we might call the moral equivalent of an earthquake or a tornado. But it's just these small, seemingly small, seemingly small, but incessant, persistent, and ultimately destructive vibrations of a collection of sins that we'll call this morning the spirit of Diotrephes. This collection of sins that over time can destroy, utterly destroy and tear apart a church. John, I believe, is writing this letter to Gaius to address um, this sin and, and its impact upon Gaius in his ministry of hospitality. This letter is to a man by the name of Gaius, someone who is personally known to the Apostle John, someone that he says he loved in truth. He's beloved to John. Somebody that was dear to him, a dear friend. John writes this simply as identifying himself as the elder, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. It's, this is somebody that presumably uh, knew John. John expects Gaius to be very familiar, such that he doesn't even have to identify himself by name. The apostle brings very warm greetings, and he brings high commendation for, for Gaius. Some have supposed that Gaius might be poor in health and poor in finances from John's salutation. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Don't know for sure, but it's very possible, probably likely that, that he was uh, of poor health and poor finances. But whatever the condition of his body and his finances, Gaius was prospering spiritually. Gaius' soul was prospering even though he apparently was poor and didn't have good health. Because John prays that these other things, his health and his finances, would prosper just as his soul is prospering. Gaius soul is prospering because he is known for, because he practices hospitality. His good works and his reputation have reached John through the testimony of other people. They've talked about this, this poor man in not good health. These brethren that, that were talking to John testified that Gaius was walking in the truth, that he was a servant of the Lord. He showed hospitality both to the brethren and to the strangers, to strangers. And this report about Gaius's hospitality, his ministry, even though he was poor and didn't feel very good many days, he, sh- he was hospitable. 
ministering, and this report brought great joy to John. Gaius' humble service brought great joy. John says, in fact, that there is no greater joy than to know that his disciples are walking in the truth. That they are humbly serving and showing hospitality to, to brethren and to strangers. John isn't rejoicing here that Gaius is mighty in the scriptures, that he's an eloquent speaker like Apollos, or that he's a great evangelist, or that he's how many people that he's witnessed to and have been converted under his ministry and have been added to the church through, through his service. That's not what brought John joy in this case. John says he has no greater joy than to hear how his beloved friend had ministered to the physical needs of strangers and brethren alike, providing housing and food for them. And if he was poor in finances and not in good health, then he probably wasn't entertaining them. He was simply showing hospitality to them. That word for hospitality is a compound word in the Greek, comes from phileo, which is, which is a, a friendship, comradeship, and the word for strangers. So he's saying this, it's, it's friendship of strangers, such that you, they're no longer strangers, such that you, you invite them into your home and into your life and into your heart and minister to them. And that doesn't take a a lot of money, or great health. In the body of Christ, there are many gifts. You know, some are prominent, and some are not. Some, you know, like the mouth, get a lot of attention, or the eyes, you know, you might, providing sight, but, but, but others are more hidden. They're not so prominent. But they are equally important. And the gift of hospitality, providing a warm and inviting home. And it doesn't take great wealth to provide a warm and inviting home. It takes simply attention to it and a warm and loving heart. Providing a gracious and beautiful meal that's served in kindness and that doesn't, again, take great wealth. It's simply sharing with an open heart the food that you are eating, sharing it with strangers. Now, we know that there, there, is a, if there has to be a care. We don't share that with everybody, as uh, John mentions in an earlier letter. We're not to do that with everybody. There is, there is some discernment. But there is, a, there is a place for showing this hospitality to brethren and to strangers. And when we do that, you see, they're no longer strangers. Hospitality is to invite people into your heart and sharing what you have 
with them such that they become friends if they were not before. And, it, and, and they become closer friends and deeper friends if they were friends before. You see, where entertainment can be costly and exhausting, uh, Gaius, who wasn't in good health and didn't have great finances, excelled at it because he was walking in the truth and he loved the Lord with a sincere heart. And that was what he ministered to people. And so if Gaius can excel at this hospitality, not having an expensive house and fine furniture and not having great wealth, then not having these things is no excuse for not showing hospitality. The name Gaius is mentioned several times in the scriptures. And there are probably different people that are being mentioned. There was a Gaius that was a traveling companion of Paul. He's mentioned in Acts 19. Um, and, and one other place in Acts. But there's also a Gaius, a Gaius that was in Corinth. And this, I think, may have been the Gaius to whom John wrote this letter for, for a couple reasons. This Gaius that was at Corinth was noted in Paul's letter to the Roman church as not only Paul's host, but the host of the whole church. Paul said in Romans 16, 23, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. And given that this letter is about hosting and hospitality and that Paul singled out Gaius in the church at Corinth, calling him a host and the host of the church um, <clears throat> seems to make this a, a likely match. But there's another reason as well. In the first letter to Corinth, <clears throat> where a place where Paul spent some time, according to Acts, so he, it would be reasonable that he would have gotten to know people at the church. Paul said, Paul, well, in that letter, Paul addresses sectarianism in their midst. You remember how he opens the letter in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. You know, some people were following Paul. Some people in the church were following Paulus. And, and Paul said, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, Cephas, or I am of Christ. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, Paul says, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the increase. And so Paul is, is, is rebuking this sectarianism, this hero worship, where people had singled out a leader in the church, somebody who was prominent for their gifts, and who they favored, and they said, well, I'm, I'm on his team. I, he's the guy I listen to. I like him. I like when, when he listens, then I come to church. Or when he's speaking, then I, I go listen. These people had, had their rock stars equivalent. And so Paul, Paul, is, Paul rebukes that attitude. But then he says this. I thank God that I baptize none of you. Meaning, so you're not going to follow me. 
when you should be following Christ. He says, but I think I, I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And I think um, that Gaius was not apparently caught up in, in this pride of, uh, of sectarianism, of following a given leader. Given what John says about Diotrephes in, in, in this chapter, in Third John, not receiving people whom John had sent and, and putting people out of the church who opposed Diotrephes and wanted to receive the people that John had sent, I, I think Gaius was someone who was just trying to serve. He was just a humble man who excelled at, this, at the gift of hospitality. And he wanted to follow Diotrephes because Diotrephes was apparently a leader in the church, an elder. And, and, Diot- and, and Gaius, as a humble man, was seeking to do what the scripture says and, and be in submission and follow his elder. But he was facing opposition for his hospitality. Others that had stood up to Diotrephes, abuses, and had been put out of the church. But I see Gaius as someone who was reluctant to do that. He was trying to live in submission. And so the Apostle John writes to Gaius, first highly commending him for his ministry of hospitality. That's a humble ministry. It doesn't have the prominence of teaching. And of leadership, and of the things of leadership, of speaking, and so forth. But but John is profuse in his praise, and commendation, of Gaius for this ministry, and says, "I have no greater joy than to see you walking in the truth in this way." I, I and I, I don't think that John would have said all these things if Gaius was somebody. That, that was given to pride. But Gaius, in his humility and his desire to be submission, was, was being opposed by diatrophies. And so John writes to him. And he firmly tells Gaius, as an apostle, we therefore ought to receive such that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These are people that had been sent out in truth. He said, um, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. These were people that had been blessed by his ministry, his hospitality, and and they spoke about it to others in the church to edify him. He said, if you send them forward on your journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. You do well. Those who give a cup of cold water in the name of Christ receive the reward of the prophet. Jesus said, he he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And John is telling Gaius here 
that if you send these people forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his name, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We ought, therefore, to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. He's saying, Gaius, when you show hospitality to these people and when you send these people on, having blessed them with with your fellowship, with food, with a home, with a place to stay, you become a fellow worker in the truth. You become a fellow laborer with them in the gospel. And as Jesus says, you receive their reward with them because of this ministry and this service. That's huge encouragement to Gaius. And you ought to be a huge encouragement to us not to neglect this very vital and important ministry of hospitality, even though it's a humble one. It's an unseen one. It's big. It's big in the church and gave John no greater joy. So I think Gaius was experiencing opposition from Diotrephes. And John writes to him to affirm him in his work. And then he condemns Diotrephes in a letter to this man. He says, I wrote to the church about Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. All right, so I wrote to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, John said, if I, come to mind, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. John says, if I come, I'm going to bring charges to the presbytery. I'm going to expose what he's doing. Prating against us. Not talking nonsense. The stuff he's saying is not true. It's gossip. It's slander. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose that. I'm going to bring this. I'm going to charge him. I will call them to mind. I'm gonna, it means he's going to bring them up. He's going to remember them. That's the exact opposite of, of forgiveness is to bring something to mind. We have a, he, John is not speaking uh, in terms of his personal relation to Diotrephes, but he's speaking as an elder here in his duty to protect the church from people like Diotrephes by, by raising charges. If Diotrephes continues in his sin. Basically, we... John brings three main charges against Diotrephes. And I'll call this package of sinful behavior because it's all kind of connected. And when I say there's three things, they're really all, they're really connected. And underneath um, all of this, what I'll call the spirit of Diotrephes is pride. That's the first charge that he brings against Diotrephes. He is arrogant. He loves to have the preeminence in the church. He loved to be first. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence 
among them didn't, didn't receive what John wrote, and he didn't receive the people who were sent by John with his commendation. He wanted to be the man. The church was his church. It was his ministry. The name on the sign, he wanted it to be his. The radio personality, that was his. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they loved the greeting in the marketplace. They loved the honorary titles, to be called by honorary titles. And when other people came, other labors in the truth, Diotrephes did not receive them. He didn't want to share his position of prominence in the church with anybody else. He didn't want to let anybody else into his pulpit to preach. Or he didn't want to let anybody else teach the people. He wanted all that for himself because he wanted the glory to go to him. The Lord says, you know, every person struggles with pride, every and certainly so does every minister. And God told Paul that he was afflicted with with a thorn in the flesh so that he might know the grace of God and its sufficiency that that God's strength might be made perfect in weakness. And God says that he entrusted the gospel to vessels of clay so that the glory would be the Lord's and no man's. And so some and so great gifts can sometimes be a great weakness. And Paul had to learn, he said, that it is when I am weak then I am strong. When I am weak then I'm strong. And he he'll boast then in his weaknesses and in his infirmities so that the power of Christ would rest upon him. But see, this wasn't diatrophies. He boasted in his strength, in his preeminence. He liked to be in authority, but he was unwilling to be under authority himself. There's nothing wrong with authority. There's nothing wrong with gifting. But all those who are in authority also need to be under authority. Every, every person needs to be under authority. We need, we all need authority in our lives. Elders, I need authority in my life. I need the presbytery and their authority over me. Husbands and fathers need authority in their lives. We all, all need authority in our lives to be under authority, but not diatrophies. He didn't even accept the authority of the Apostle John. And when John would write a letter commending people, he didn't receive those people. He acted unilaterally as a lone ranger and lived without accountability. And those are all characteristics of pride. And pride in leadership is destructive to anybody. Or pride is destructive for anybody. Right? Pride goes before destruction and before a fall. But pride in leadership is devastating to the church and can destroy a church. 
And that's why teachers have a stricter judgment because there's a greater damage from their sins than from others, the sins of other people. The second charge against Diotrephes is the malicious use of his tongue. John says, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Prating, talking nonsense. The stuff he's saying isn't true. There isn't substance to it. It's, it's slanderous gossip. The ninth commandment is, is an incredibly broad commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. John describes it as the malicious words, the malicious use of the tongue. James says that the tongue defiles the whole body. And a a malicious tongue in an elder and a minister defiles, can defile the entire church. James says that the tongue sets on fire the course of nature and that it is set on fire by hell. What are are the sins of the ninth commandment? What is involved in the malicious use of the tongue? Well, I'd like to just read what the catechism includes under this commandment In in, in summing up what's in the malicious use of the tongue. Well, it's prejudicing the truth. Shading the truth. Just just a little bit. To change it just enough that you communicate a little different message. Oh, maybe everything you say is true. But you've prejudiced it to communicate the opposite message. I love this little gif and that shows a picture of a TV screen, right? Actually, it's the video camera, TV camera, actually, the actual camera, shows the picture on that, what that camera is filming. And in that picture, you see what appears to be two men. And it, and it seems like one guy is trying to stab another guy in front of him with a knife. That's what it looks like. Maybe some of you have seen this. And, and so, you, so here's this picture of TV camera. There's a guy... There's a uh, guy, you know, well, well, it's just a TV camera, and there's a screen, guy stabbing another guy. The next picture just zooms out on that, and you see that this is a TV camera, and there's a man standing behind the TV camera, and he's, he's got the camera aimed at two people. But where you thought one guy was stabbing the other guy with a knife, when you see the whole picture, you realize that the guy you thought was stabbing the other guy with a knife, is actually the guy running away from the guy who's trying to stab him with a knife. Now, was there anything false about the picture that you saw first? No, not at all. You just didn't see the whole picture. When you see the whole picture, you realize it's the exactly the opposite of what you were led to believe in the first picture. That's prejudicing the truth. You're shading it. 
and you're actually communicating a different message from reality. Prejudicing the truth, which, which can involve the good name of our neighbors. We can do the same thing to our neighbor. We can say something that's true, but communicate the opposite of what reality is. And to the injury of the good name of our neighbor, as well, of our, as, well as our own. Of course, you can also give false evidence, false, suborn false witnesses. You can wittingly, no, mean knowingly, appear and plead for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth. Outfacing and overbearing the truth. Passing unjust sentence calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. Diotrephes was doing that. We'll see in a minute. Forgery, concealing the truth. Right? Those, are, those we understand as lies. But also, not speaking the uh, 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 unjust silence in a just cause. Not saying anything when, when you need to say something. Holding our peace. When iniquity calls for a reproof from ourselves or others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of the truth or justice. An equivocal expression is one that can be taken in different ways. And so you use the word in one way and then you use the word another way and so it's called equivocating. You're not clear. You're not, you're not speaking what is true, but you're, you're equivocating. Uh, you're saying you did something and you didn't do it at the same time. Speaking the truth unseasonably. You, everything you say is exactly true. But it is a lie. It's, it's a, so I, I think if you want a definition of what is the sin that is breaking the ninth commandment, it would be this. It would be the unjust handling of the truth. The unjust or the improper handling of the truth. So... A lie, by definition, is the unjust handling of the truth. So the, we asked the question, did Rahab lie, for example? Well, no. She, she did not unjustly handle the truth. Did Doeg lie when he told Saul that Abimelech had given food to David when David was fleeing from Saul. Did he lie? Yes. The psalm, says, the psalm says that he lied. But everything he said to Saul was true. It was an unjust handling of the truth. See, not all killing of people is murder. Sometimes it's necessary and just to do so. Murder is the unjust killing of people. 
not all sexual activity is fornication. There's a proper use of it in marriage. But when it's improperly done outside of marriage, then it's adultery or fornication. You see, and it's the same thing with the handling of the truth. Not every instance of saying something that's not true is a lie. It's on the unjust handling of the truth. God hides the righteous from the wicked, and he exposes the wicked to the justice of the righteous. And so when Rahab hid the spies, the Bible never says she lied. It says she hid the spies. She concealed the righteous from the wicked. When Doeg told the truth, told what was true to Saul, he exposed the righteous to the wicked, uh, to Saul. And, and it resulted in the death of Abimelech. Now that was all according to God's sovereign plan, but it was wickedness on the part of Doeg. And so Diotrephes, or, uh, Diotrephes prates against even the apostle John with malicious words, gossip, slander, prejudicing the truth, speaking the truth unseasonably, or speaking the truth maliciously to a wrong purpose, for a wrong reason. Backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial, partial meaning not impartial, partial meaning uh, prejudice in a wrong way, partial, censuring. Censuring. Diotrephes did this. We'll get to that in a minute. Misconstructing intentions. See, we're to have, we're to think good of people. We're to assume good of people and have charitable thoughts towards their intentions. But when we uh, misconstrue intentions, misconstrue their words, we're to have a charitable interpretation of people's words and communications to us and understand them in the best possible light. But misconstruing their intentions, their words or their actions is a form of unjust handling of the truth, breaking the ninth commandment. It's malicious words. Flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others. Speaking too highly of ourselves. Another, another sin of Diotrephes. Denying the gifts and graces of God. Diotrephes was denying and preventing people from showing hospitality. Aggravating smaller farts. Hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins. Hiding of sins when called to a free confession. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities. So it's either way. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities or hiding the sins that ought to be exposed. Raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense. Dr. Pease has done this. Letters of John commending people came, and Dr. Pease refused to receive those letters. He stopped his ears. Evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their grace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises. Neglecting such things are, as are of good report. That's exactly what Diotrephes did. These good reports that John was sending, he ignored them. He refused to receive the, the, the 
ministers, evangelists that John had commended. Neglecting such things as our good report and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. Now John has some very negative things to say about Diotrephes. John is here in the pages of Scripture saying that Diotrephes is proud, he's arrogant, he's a liar, he's an abusive elder. Is John engaging in malicious words against Diotrephes? He's not saying very complimentary things about him. Well, no, of course not. John is using the truth rightly. He's justly handling the truth. Diotrephes is unjustly handling the truth. And what's the difference? Well, the just handling of the truth always conceals the righteous from the wicked. The unjust handling of the truth exposes the righteous to the wicked. You see, lying is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. It's a sin. It's a sin of the devil. Satan, Jesus said, is a, is a liar and the father of lies. It is impossible for God to lie. If it's impossible for God to lie, if it's contrary to his very nature, if it's, if it's who Satan is, then how could a lie ever be right? A lie is the unjust handling of the truth. And so the words that Diotrephes brings here are not malicious words. Or, sorry, that John brings against Diotrephes, they're not malicious words. They're the truth. And they're necessary. They're necessary to encourage Gaius in his very important ministry of hospitality. They're necessary to encourage Gaius to stand against and oppose Diotrephes because Gaius apparently wasn't a man willing easily to do that. And, and that was... A, and that was just who he was. He's a humble man. And so John writes these strong words to condemn Diotrephes and the spirit of Diotrephes. You see, the malicious use of the tongue, especially by those in leadership, sets a church on fire. Slander, gossip, uh, deceit, can minor, you know, prejudicing the truth can seem very small at the moment. But James says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs says, and those who love it will eat its fruit. See, these kinds of sins, they're ongoing. They seem small. Any one of them at any one, all by itself at one time, we may easily overlook. But when these things come together in a pattern of living, in a pattern of speaking, in a pattern of life, they are the little vibrations that destroy a building, and they destroy the church. The, th- the third charge against Diotrephes is abuse of authority. He removed those who rec- wanted to receive these ministers. They, uh, he removed those who saw his sins and uh, um, refused to participate in them, who stood up to him. He just put them out of the church says he does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to receive the brethren, putting them out of the church. He used his authority as an elder to excommunicate people who were confronting him about his sin. That's abuse 
of authority. And it's another critical piece of the spirit, the spirit of Diotrephes. You see, the church was his fan club, consisting only of those who agreed with him. And the minute somebody sought in, a, in humility to confront his sins, he cut him off and kicked him out of the church. And that's a problem that's with us today. I can't tell you how many situations I'm personally aware of where ministers, prominent men, are confronted by sin and their response is to put out of the church the person who confronted them. They're grievous abuse of authority. And it needs to be addressed. It needs to be publicly rebuked. The scriptures say that the elder who sins is to be rebuked in the presence of all, publicly. The spirit of Diotrephes is a package of pride that seeks the preeminence, is unwilling to listen to others, is divisive and and is highly destructive to the church. Now there's one characteristic that is implied in this passage, but it's not explicitly stated. And that is, some people that saw these sins and sought to expose them who were put out of the church, but he didn't put everybody out of the church. So I think their implication is that, that there were some people in the church who were, who were under the delusion that Diotrephes was a was this good man who maybe had a few sins, but who doesn't have sins? Who doesn't sin occasionally? And maybe even David, right, is that example of a man of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who committed great sin. And so there, there are people who are just willing to, to continually overlook these sins. They're willing not, sometimes not even to just overlook these little sins. I say little in, in quotes, but even big, gross sins. John says, no, no. I'm going to call these things to mind if I come. But you see, this is a characteristic that is also present with the spirit of Diotrephes is the effect it produces on the church. Some see these sins and they, and they seek to address them biblically and they often are the ones that are getting put out of the church and others excuse those sins and they justify them. And, and that isn't right. And so what happens is it, it divides the church between the people who see the sins and want to oppose them and address them and the people who want to forgive, quote unquote, forgive them. And the people who want to address them are seen as harsh and unforgiving and ungracious. And the people who want to overlook them are seen as gracious and, and forgiving. And I think John is saying, not, not with the spirit of Diotrephes. Not when you're encountering this kind of pride and this kind of malicious use of the tongue. That's, that, is, that needs to be addressed. Because it does divide the church. Divides the church. And pits people against each other. And it's a very sectarian spirit that, that uh, Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, why should you, why should we 
need to study this spirit of diatrophies? I think there's two reasons I can give. The first is that we need to be able to recognize this spirit of diatrophies and not be deceived by it. It's wrong for us to remain naive about this pattern of sin in the church or in the home. Because you can have this in any, in any institution, the family or the church, or even the civil government. Now, husbands can, can act this way in the home, and wives can put up with this kind of abuse improperly. It's easy. It can be easy to just overlook these things and to put up with them and say, well, that's just the way they are. Because we don't want to confront it. That's difficult. You might get put out of the church. You might incur their wrath against you. And some of us just rather don't want to do that. Especially in the church where it's somebody that's prominent and famous and well-known for their teaching. Paul addressed this in in 2 Corinthians. He says, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you. Put and puts on puts puts you in this way this is this is how wicked people act in the church and we need to be able to recognize it but we also need to be able to recognize these sins in us because these are just you might say ordinary sins that are all present in us in all of us pride malicious use of words not submitting to authority we all wrestle with those things. And so we need, we need to recognize these sins before they become life-defining patterns so that we can be continually mortifying them and, and putting them to death. Because there is victory in Jesus over even over these sins. As we saw last week, you know, the, the importance of dealing with the sin of pride even as it's a thought before it's worked its way out into our actions and words. But even when these things have become life-defining sins, there is salvation in Christ. There is the, the power and the, and the resources in Christ to overcome these sins and to change even when they've become life-defining. And so the world will often tell us with these people, well, they're hopeless, there's nothing that can be done for them. But the Bible says otherwise. Jesus died so that even these who have the spirit of diatrophies can be healed and restored. He died so that we who daily have our own pride and our own in submission to authority so that we can put those sins to death as well. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blood that is greater than all of our sin, for your grace, your marvelous grace that reaches even to those with the spirit of diatrophies who have life-defining sins. Oh Lord, we pray for wisdom and discernment that we may justly handle the truth in all things. And Lord, we know that we can never do this on our own. And so we ask, Lord, for a conscience that is tender toward the prompting of your spirit, especially in the area of our pride, in the area of our words, and the things that we have said. Oh, Lord, may you 
bring conviction where we are wrong and may you bring forgiveness that we might know the cleansing power of your blood to wash us from all iniquity and to present us as spotless without blemish or wrinkle. And Lord, we pray that we might know the power of your grace to keep us from stumbling for your grace is sufficient to do that as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.